0: Who has been to the highest mountain? Who's hiked the highest mountain? Jessica has been to the base camp in Everest. So here, I asked her to send me some pictures. So here we have a couple pictures. Tell us about, um, if you just want to fill us in on some of these details here from these, these photos. Um, is this the, the group that you're with? Is this a, was this a missionary team? Was this a? Yeah, it was. It was to um, so Kashmir is that country in between India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. It was in 1990 something considered the most dangerous place in the world because both the nuclear um, things were pointed at Kashmir. Mm-hmm. Cool. And here's, you sent me a few, but here's just another. I thought this picture was just really beautiful too. Um, and then, um, and then just the solo shot of you. It almost, um, it almost reminds me a little bit of Alaska. But yeah, I don't know. It's just a real beautiful. Those, just those pictures were really beautiful to kind of be up in those mountains. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like. Um, so, anyway, now that we got our minds back on the mountains. Back into the mountains with the stories of Jessica and being up. And if anybody else has been to a high excursion, I know that Ronnie is currently training for Mount Whitney to to make the trek. Um, but if anybody else has been and they want to share about it, that'd be great. We're gonna we're in this series on the on the mountains in Matthew, <clears throat> and we talked two weeks ago about the temptation. Um, Satan leads Jesus in the temptation narratives, right? Satan begins by tempting Jesus in the wilderness and then he takes him to the uh, top of the temple and he tempts him and then he takes him to the top of the highest mountain and he tempts him again. This week we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Just to remind ourselves about two weeks ago, um, just those three movements that we talked about in the temptation, we talked about Satan, Satan's primary job, his primary um, strategy in this world is one of division. Right? To divide people, to separate, to isolate, to segregate. Anytime we see that happening in our world, anytime we see that happening in relationships, um, in in our, um, anywhere that we see that happening, even within ourselves, right? We can often kind of sense this internal struggle, this strife, that that even in ourselves, we're battling against one another. That is just simply the work of Satan. It was his strategy in the garden. It's always been his strategy. He'll always try and do that. Um, We talked about temptations. Uh, Satan offers Jesus this temptation. He offers him the kingdom without any of the suffering that Jesus needs to go through. Temptations are always just shortcuts, right? Jesus has to endure the cross for his kingdom to come into fulfillment. Satan gives him a shortcut. He says, if you just bow real quickly, you can have the kingdoms. Uh, We talked about, I should have put the lower and uppercase K. The lowercase kingdom, the uppercase kingdom. Uh, Satan offers Jesus the lowercase kingdoms of the world, the small Ks. And we're always offered those small Ks, those small kingdoms, This is always the choice that the gospel presents to us, is which kingdom will you pledge your allegiance to? Which kingdom will you worship? The kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of Caesar, the kingdoms of whoever is the current placeholder right now, or the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's always been the choice. That's always been the choice that's been laid out before us. So this week, I want to take you up into the kind of the northwest corner of Galilee as we go into the Sermon on the Mount. I want to show you, um, here's Capernaum on the sea. Jesus says so much of his ministry kind of up in and around this area uh, by the Sea of Galilee. So when Jesus gives his sermon on the and I know this is very hard to see. Right here, they put, and again, we don't know exactly where Jesus did this, but they put the Mount Beatitudes. This is where Jesus gives his famous sermon. Um, here's a couple of pictures of it. And I wish that the picture showed up a little clearer on the projector. But as you can kind of see It's not necessarily mountains up in this area as more kind of hillsides or, you know, um, just kind of lowercase, not the mountains that Jessica experienced up in in Kashmir, but just kind of these mounts, these hillsides that Jesus goes up on to give his sermon. Um, Again, here's maybe a picture of the Sea of Galilee. We don't, again, there's not like, hey, X marks a spot, here's where Jesus did it. There is a church that has been kind of formed there. Um, Has anybody ever been to this area or experienced this? No? Um, And I have not yet either, but they have this church that's kind of been set up. And again, this is the general area where they believe that Jesus gave this sermon, this kind of hillside that he was up on as he delivered this Sermon on the Mount, this Mount of Beatitudes. Um, And so as we kind of get our minds up in there, let's just then go to the text and read the text. This is in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 12, we're going to spend this week in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to spend next week in the Sermon on the Mount, and, um, and then I think we'll take a quick break for our anniversary. anniversary, yeah. just, anniversary is next week. Two weeks, Johnny, two weeks. weeks, two weeks. <laughs> March 1st, March 1st is the big day. Got a flat tire, ain't? Right? All right. Let's just take a chance, or not a chance, but let's just take a um, a turn. Each person read in a verse, and uh, we'll just read again the first twelve verses. Just kind of these these what's called the Beatitudes. So let me start us off. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Blessed are those the mourners, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those in heart, God. Blessed are the peace makers, for <clears throat> they will be called children of God. Yeah. Um, blessed are those who uh, are persecuted because of their righteousness, for they mm-hmm. Blessed are you when the people insult you, and persecute you, and the policy sale, and are the evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Excellent. So Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount. Um, As we kind of get through this passage, it's called the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives. Uh, You're probably familiar with this. Uh, There's eight blessings that are recounted by Jesus at the beginning. This is, um, I once heard a pastor call it the most important sermon in the world, right? The most important sermon ever given. If you were to combine every single sermon that every pastor has given of all time, and if you were to... Combine the effectiveness and the power and everything of those, all of the sermons ever preached wouldn't even be like would barely fill a Dixie cup next to the power that is found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most important sermon the world has ever heard, will ever hear. Um, it is the most powerful words, the most powerful sermon words. That this world has ever had. As we think about this Sermon on the Mount, I want to look at these 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 three words. I want to look at the wrong way. I want to look at the definition, the disposition, and the direction. See that you guys? The D words. That's pretty impressive, right? Like that's when you guys know when your pastor has got it going on. This was a good week for me. I got over my sickness. I was able to link it together. I'll use that way when you guys are home this this afternoon. You're be like, oh yeah, definition, disposition, and direction. That's easy. And I remember this. Sorry, I just just messed with you guys. It's just being silly. Um, But I want to look at the definition um, of this word blessed. I want to look at the disposition of these beatitudes. It's kind of going to be a little bit more of an overview of these beatitudes. And then I want to show us the direction that these beatitudes moved. I think Jesus kind of links them in a particular way. As as I've said before, one of the greatest gifts that has been, um, I've experienced over, I would say, the past year, year and a half as a pastor, is a commentary by a guy named Frederick Dale Bruner. And it's just... It's just so amazing, and, and so much of the teaching, and especially in Matthew, um, has been through Bruner's commentary, his thoughts, so a lot of this is just, I'd give all credit to Bruner for this, um, so some of it's mine, and some of it's just kind of playing off what he's done, and I'll quote him as as I, as I see quoted, but um, again, just all credit, if you just want to go into the deep end and go get nerdy, Frederick Dale Bruner's commentary on Matthew, the Christ book, and the church book are just just remarkable. Um, so let's start with the definition. This word blessed, okay? Turn to the person next to you. What does that word mean, blessed? <coughs> blessed. All right. This is the quick one. Who wants to take a stab at it? Blessed. What does that word "blessed" mean? Okay, like a grace you've been giving you don't deserve all the way. Coming around the horn. Yeah. I just had a, like a blanket of mercy that's kind of kind of some similar things right here, right? Something you don't deserve. Yeah, mercy, grace you don't deserve. Damon? Through the righteousness of God, may you have good things coming upon you. Yeah, okay. So like some good things coming upon you, some fortune maybe. Anyone else? Lucky. Lucky? yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of these words are, are are what we think of when we think of the word blessed, right? I don't know why I thought about this, but when I hear the word blessed, to me, it's just the white bread of Christian words, right? It's the word that just kind of gets thrown out. We just use it. It's the churchy word. Sometimes I get a little annoyed at this word blessed. I had a friend of mine, who I, he was actually a kid that I mentored, and his email signature was um, blessings and you guys know Scott. It was like it was like you know. So his signature was blessings Scott R L. And I kind of joked with him for like seriously Scott blessings. It's just the white bread because we you know we we see this word. Politicians love to use this word, right? What do politicians love to say? God bless America, God bless America right? And maybe you've seen this <clears throat> on on you know we see this all the times. If you're seeing maybe a homeless person and they have their cardboard sign that says God bless you, right? It just kind of is this word. That doesn't have a lot of like nutritional value, I guess, to it, right? Spiritual value. We just kind of like happy, fortunate. You know, we just kind of have this this vague definition towards it. Sometimes, again, we think about this word blessed, and you know, if you say blessings or "Hey, God bless you," it's almost as a way to say "Go be happy," right? Go have fortune. Go have good luck, right? Um, so we have this word blessed. I think a great way to understand this word blessed is you have to maybe kind of put it back into its context in the Old Testament. I want to try and round this word out. Because again, Jesus just says blessed, blessed, blessed. Is Jesus just telling us to be happy? Right? Is Jesus just telling us to be lucky? Is Jesus just t- saying, like, what is this word blessed, bless, blessed when he says it? Because obviously it's got something. If you go back to, the, uh, to Genesis 27, and you don't have to necessarily do that because this is a whole long passage back there. But does anybody remember the story of Isaac and um and and Jacob and Esau? Anybody remember that story? The bear. Huh? The son had the birthright and the mom didn't made him the bowl of soup and Yeah. The and, and then the son that didn't have the birthright brought the stew and put on the sheep's clothing and this guy was blind and he was tricked to give the blessing to the to the son that wasn't supposed to get the blessing. Right. So remember Esau's the older brother? Right, the birthright and the blessing always go to the older brother. Jacob ends up dressing up like his older brother with the sheepskin and the hair and the stew and all that, and he 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 gets the birthright earlier. But then he actually goes and he steals the he steals the blessing as, as well. Remember Jacob, and then he has to run away. Um, but when you look at a blessing, say in the Old Testament, right? When a blessing is given in the Old Testament. Um, you would have these, let me get out of the way, you'd have these specific words of encouragement. You could actually go, if you wanted to go read Isaac's, I mean, um, Isaac's blessing for Jacob or Esau, you could actually go read this, and you would see these words of encouragement that would be given, right? You would see details that would regard each son's inheritance. So there was a very tangible nature to the blessing, right? It wasn't, again, just kind of this white bread that has no real value to it. There was details regarding each son's inheritance, there would also be these prophetic words concerning the future, right? When we think about this word blessed, and again, one of the things that Bruner does in his commentary is he kind of updates this and he says, you might be able to think about it like this. You could say that this word blessed, right? When you would speak this blessing over someone, it was a dynamic pronouncement that could convey a gift to the recipient, right? Again, when Isaac blesses Jacob, there was something dynamic. There was something, a gift that was inherent in that, right? Um, Brunner also says that there's a declaration that a new reality exists, right? Something is new. Something is changed as a result of these words spoken over you. Something is new. And then there's this exhortation. There's this challenge to live in this new way, in this new reality, Right? So when Jesus is saying these words, blessed, 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 Jesus is not simply saying, happy are you, when fill in the blank. Right? Jesus is giving us a dynamic pronouncement that is a gift to us as the recipients. Right? He is declaring in these words, blessed, when he's speaking these words, blessed, that a new reality exists. Right, And then he's also giving us an exhortation to kind of live in this new reality or live in this, in this new um, sense. The Greek word actually, because again, as we kind of think of the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, but the Greek word is this word "makorai," And this word "makorai," it, it would carry this similar sentiment to the Old Testament type of blessing where this word, again, you got to think about this word, it does something, right? It does something to us. It's not simply this. Again, when we think about this word bless or when this word bless is used, it's often just kind of this white bread of a word that we just, it just doesn't have any value. But when Jesus uses it, when Christians use it, when we speak it, even, you know, even I was thinking about this, even at the end of an email, right? It does something to us as Christians as we receive that word, Right? In Matthew's recording of Jesus' word, he opens with this word blessed, this gift, this new reality, this expectation or this exhortation to live in this new way. So that's the word blessed. Does that help us understand that word blessed a little bit more than just blessed, right? And you can still say it in that way, but it helps to understand when you're speaking that word blessed, when you're saying that word blessed over somebody, when you're saying God bless you to someone, or when you're saying blessings or whatever that might be, there's something that's behind that word that's more than just "Hey, good luck." I hope you're happy. I hope you're fortunate. You know what I mean? There's something that's behind it that's real and tangible as we speak that in the name of Jesus, right? What about when you sneeze? When you say "God bless you" when you sneeze? More like a guy. Yeah, I mean, what is the is it the old wives' tale that they they believe that part of your spirit was leaving when you sneezed, and so you're speaking a blessing over that part of. The, I think that's the old wives' tale that I've heard of. God bless you. When, again, when you say it, and if somebody sneezes, and you want to be polite and kind to them, and 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 courteous, I think that it's just a way to really speak that into some someone's life. So, okay, the definition of the blessed. now the disposition. I thought this was probably. Um, the most important things I've had ever read about the Beatitudes. And I had never th- uh, thought or seen the Beatitudes in this nature. So I want to start off with, with a quote from Bruner. And, um, and then I want to kind ex- of you know, expand this a little bit. <clears throat> Bruner says that Jesus begins not with demands, but blessings. And he says, this already tells us something about Jesus. He blesses before he commands. He helps before he orders, right? Um, when we think about the Beatitudes, right? When we think about these words, the Beatitudes, I would say, and, and me too as a pastor, as I've even, and I've probably even preached sermons like this, right? Sometimes we think about the Beatitudes as formulas, right? So, for example, pick up your Bible, pick up your Bible, and we kind of can think of if, um, if I, be, verse 5, if I try really hard and become meek, then I receive the earth, right? Or maybe in, um, in verse 7, if I work really hard on being merciful, then I will be shown mercy. Sometimes we read the Beatitudes as formulas, as people who do X simply to receive Y, Right? and I've probably even preached it like this, but one of the things that the commentators point out is that we really need to to be careful not to moralize just to make a bunch of morals out of what Jesus is doing here, this beatitudes, right? Sometimes we even think about this word, be attitude, and we think that Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, here's a bunch of attitudes that you need to be like that you need to become. If you do these attitudes, if you be these things, if you, if you have this area and, and you become like this, well then, again, the kind of formula piece, well then you'll get all this other stuff. But you have to be these attitudes, which it becomes like this impossible list, right? I mean, think about the words, the things that Jesus wants us to be. If we read it in the moral formula, hey, I'm just gonna do this, right? We need to be poor in spirit, right? You need to go be humble. You need to go be contrite. You need to mourn, you you need to go be meek, right? You need to go, you know, somehow drum up more hunger and thirst for righteousness. You need to be merciful, you need to go be pure in heart, you need to be a peacemaker. And when you read it in the formula, all these attitudes that you have to be, right, what happens is, is it ends up just becoming, it just becomes, it's just religion is what it is, right? Here's all the steps that you need to take to God, to get to God, to make God happy with you so that you can get what you need in return. And again, going back to Bruner's quote, Jesus is beginning here not with demands, but with blessings, right? Right? It's telling us something about the nature of Jesus. What do you believe about Jesus? Is Jesus just got a bunch of commands that he's wanting you to do and that he's holding out on you? And if you do the commands really, really well, well, then you'll get the blessings. Does he just have a bunch of orders, a bunch of laws? And if you do those really, really well, well, then you'll get the help, right? Or does Jesus bless before he commands? Does he help before he orders? See, this is why I was like I was reading his commentary this week, and I almost fell out of my chair. I know I say that a lot, but I did almost fall out of my chair this week, um, because really, what the beatitudes are, right, is they are. And Eric, you said this. They are grace for those who cannot help themselves, right? Jesus is, in essence, saying he's pronouncing over this, over us, that I'm with you. I'm on your side. I'm near to you, to have courage. The disposition, I would say this, the disposition of the Beatitudes is of grace, is of help, of gifts, not necessarily demands, commands, or moral expectations. Right? So we start again with this disposition as we understand Jesus is speaking these blessings over us as he's giving us this word. We, we start with them with the disposition that first and foremost, it's grace, it's help, it's gifts, not, hey, here's a new list of things to go do, and then you'll get the help and the blessing and the goodness, right? How many people have read the Beatitudes in the opposite way, right? Where, hey, if I do X, if I'm merciful, if I'm a peacemaker, if I go do all these things, well, then I'm going to get, and then I'm going to, and that ends up just being a lot of religion, right? Okay. Two-thirds of the way through. A short sermon this morning. Um, the direction. The direction of these Beatitudes. Um, and I want to separate them into three movements or three categories. Um, the first one is this. And by the way, Bruner separates them like this too. So he separates them into these three categories. He begins by, by calling these first four. And if you want to kind of follow along, this is verses um, three, four, five, and 6. And he calls them the need or the poor beatitudes of grace and faith, okay? And so he begins by saying that there are those who are poor in spirit, right? Those who are poor in joy. When you're mourning, when you're in that sense of mourning, you don't have a lot of joy in your life. You're in, in incredible sorrow, pain, hurt, suffering, um, those who are poor in power, right? When you are meek, you are not trying to climb to the top. You're not trying to sit on top. And then those who are poor in righteousness. There's something about you where you are hungry and you're thirsty for that righteousness. So he begins by talking about these are poor, um, the poor or the need beatitudes of grace and faith. And the first category is for people who simply lack. Right? They're deprived. They're in a deplorable situation. And again, here's the thing the Son of God simply blesses. Right? You're broken. You're empty. You're, fail- you're a failure. You're suffering. You're inadequate. And He just gives His sheer gift of witness. One of the things that I was reading was that there's absolutely nothing you can do at least in the first three, there's nothing you can do to actually become that in that uh, condition, right? Like go home and go try and mourn. Go home and go try and be poor in spirit, right? You just can't. It's just a condition that you are in and you just in this position, the son of God simply blesses you, right? He, he speaks over you with a sheer gift of his withness of his presence alongside of you in these, in these need or in these poor moments of your life, right? The second disp- uh, direction here is that then it goes, what Bruner says, is that then it goes into the help or the full beatitudes of service and love, right? So in the next couple here and verses... Um, Seven through nine, blessed are the merciful, those who are full of mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who are full of purity, right? And then blessed are the peacemakers, those who are pure, or or, sorry, full of peace. Um, This, incidentally, what happens here is as you kind of, as you in that need pour, and God blesses you with his witness, his presence, his goodness in your life, then what they say is that in this, in this point, you kind of reach out, right? And you, you, you move out into this world, right? You kind of put your arms out. You reach out into this world. Um, and then lastly... Let me say this one. Let me say one more thing about this. Um, in, in this second part, in these ones that are full, right? As you've received God's presence and witness in the need or the poor, beatitudes of grace and faith when you're poor in spirit, joy, power, righteousness, right? Then God comes and he fills you and he's with you in those moments and you become full of mercy and purity and peace. And then you begin to reach out to others. Uh, I wanted to quote this verse from Corinthians out of the message, right? One of my favorite verses. This probably is a little bit, of too much information for you, but I'm just going to spit it out there anyway, just because I'm feeling it. When I used to work at my old church, (laughs) I'm feeling it. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) When I used to work at my old church um, at Seaside, I'll never forget this. This was, I don't know why, I'll never forget this. Um, At one point, somebody had the idea of putting Bible verses in the bathroom. So when you were going to the bathroom, um, you would stare at a Bible verse. (laughs) And this was the Bible verse that you would stare at, that I used to stare at when I would go to the bathroom at Seaside. And that's why, again, it's probably too much information for you all, but I just wanted you to know that this is why I love this verse so much. Um, All praise to the God and Father of our Master, Jesus the Messiah, Father of all mercy, God of all healing counsel. Listen, He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. Think about those poor, those need beatitudes of grace and faith, right? When you mourn. When you suffer, when you're in pain, when your spirit is broken, right? He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. This is the second one, right? As we. Our, as God comes alongside us in our mourning and our suffering and our hurting, we then move alongside someone else who is in mourning or hurting or suffering. Right? We have plenty of hard times that come from following the Messiah, but no more than the good times of his healing comfort. We get a full measure of that too. So, The last movement then moves into this, right? Where Jesus talks about the hurt or the persecution beatitudes of joy and hope, right? Persecution for righteousness sake and persecution for Jesus' sake. So think about the movement. Think about the direction, right? You begin, and Bruner says that he uses stick figures when he really wants to draw this out. He says, or you can act it out, right? Bruner says that you begin like this on your knees, right you're hurting you're broken you're poor in spirit in joy in power and righteousness right this is just the kind of one of the primary dispositions of a Christian man god this is just difficult for me right now right but then as god comes and he's alongside us as he's with us as he pronounces these blessings over us right as he announces a new reality into our lives Brunner says that then we almost stand up, and he says the next movement is we put our hands out to our brothers and sisters. This is what Paul says in Corinthians, right? That we help others because we've been helped in our difficult times. We help others in, their time, in those difficult times because why? God's filled us with mercy and purity and peace, right? Now, as we're filled with mercy and purity and peace, and as we bring that out into the world, Mercy and purity and peace are not values that the world cherishes or respects. Sometimes a little bit here and there. But in general, when push comes to shove, mercy and purity and peace are not characteristics or values that the world uh, cherishes or, or values or cares about, right? And so... What happens is, is when you are a merciful person, when you're a pure person, when you're a peaceful person, right? The world ends up persecuting you for that. And you end up, what Bruno says, is you end up like this. On your back, right? Because you're being persecuted by the world. So he talks about his three movements as knees, kind of hands out, and then you end up on your back. A couple weeks ago, I did that Stages of Faith sermon, I was thinking about this as stages of faith too, right? There's stages in our life when we're on our knees because of difficult times. There's stages in our life when we are um, full of mercy and we're helping those around us. And then there's stages in our life where we're literally being persecuted um, for, for Jesus, for righteousness because of what we believe. When I think about the full of mercy, I was like, okay, well, how does that happen in this world? How do we see this happening in our world, right? I, I got a couple Semi-silly examples. So think about mercy, right? Sometimes we think mercy, that's a nice word, and you know, we, we like to use it here, in especially Christian language. Really when push comes to shove in the world, in the hard brass tacks of the world, right? And again, here's my kind of silly example. We all know this, this great... this. You, gra- yes, you just watched it yesterday? Yes, I'm so you are probably full of mercy right that's now. His <laughs> that's his son? That's his son? Have we seen the commercial? Have we all seen the commercial for this, huh? Koalakai, where he says instead of is it? He says instead of sweep the leg, raise the leg, and then instead of no mercy. Have we seen this? Okay, okay. I see it. It's a funny commercial where he kind of spins off this, you know. But you know, and we laugh kind of at this this um at this this moment here in Karate Kid. But honest, honestly, when you know a lot of times in life. When push really comes to shove, right, when it's either us or the next guy, our primary disposition is not mercy, right? It's not laying down our lives for the next posi- person. It's really to, to, to take life by the horns. It's to, to take command of our lives, right? So, again, mercy is not a value, um, not a value in our world. And then I was thinking about purity and heart and thought. What does that look like? And here's why I show my girls. Because my girls are... They're, they're in that kind of innocent, that pure stage where the other day we were driving around in the car and they were trying to figure out what the S word meant. <laughs> they have evidently encountered the S word in school and they're trying to figure out... It's probably from this person. <laughs> you know, and they're trying to figure out what... It, it's Trent the neighbor oh really, I'm gonna get my belt out for that child. no mercy, <laughs> but yeah, but you know what when we think about when we think about like children and that innocence and that purity, and when we think about like, adults like that, and we kind of you know if somebody you were sitting around in the break room at work or. You're you know, you're kinda of, everybody's telling the jokes and everybody's laughing and, and you know, you, you know sometimes that person where the joke just kinda of goes over their head and like, oh yeah, that you know, that Christian over there, they're just clueless and But there is that sense of purity, right? That that as we that innocence that we are called to have as followers of Jesus. Right? Jesus even says, I want you to be an, as innocent, as pure as a what? Remember that? As a dove, right? Pure, innocent as a dove. These shrewdest sna- snakes, but it's pure, innocent as a dove. And again, a, not a value that, you know, the, the world values our wit and, and our and our quickness and our um, be able to be relevant in all things. But Jesus values this purity, There's this innocence. And then this last piece, this peacemakers. Anybody remember this story of St. Telemachus? Anybody got this? narrative with him. Let me just read this real quick. This was, I I found this, this story a couple years ago. I've always just been so inspired by this story. So St. Telemachus was a monk and he lives back in the fourth century. So think about the 300s. He feels God saying to him, go to Rome. And he was in this monastery. He was all uh, separate. Uh, he was, had this, you know, just think about that monk life in the 4th you know, century. And you're just, you know, you're doing your thing. And so he puts <laughs> his possessions in a sack. He goes to Rome. When he arrives at the cities, everybody's going uh, to go see the gladiator fights. Right? That's what you would do when you're in Rome. Is, you know, the bread and the circus, you'd go see the gladiator fights. And so... Um, he, as he's kind of walking around, he thinks to himself, he says, four centuries after Christ and they're still killing each other for enjoyment. So he runs into the Colosseum um, and he hears the gladiators saying, hail to Caesar, we die for Caesar. And he again thinks that this isn't right. This isn't the way that things should be. He jumps over the railing and he, he literally jumps into the middle of this gladiator arena, Right? While these guys are getting ready to kill each other. And as he's in the middle of these two gladiators, right? He gets literally just right in the middle of them. And he says, in the name of Christ, he says, forbear. Which means, you know, put down your arms, right? And the crowd begins to shout and they begins to cheer to kill this this kind of bizarre monk who's jumped. Into the, um, into the arena and who's ruining their gladiator games. They begin to shout, kill him, kill him, kill him. A gladiator comes over and hits him in the stomach with the back of his sword. Um, it sent him spiraling. He got up and ran back again and said, in the name of Christ, again, forbear, put down your weapons, stop. The crowd continues to chant, kill him, kill him, kill him. One gladiator came over and plunged his sword through the little monk's stomach, and he falls into the sand. One last time, he gasped out, in the name of Christ, forbear." And this hush comes over the crowd. And as this hush comes over the crowd, it, the, the, the story goes that soon one man leaves, and then another, and another, and another. And within just a few minutes, All 80,000 people have emptied out of the Colosseum. And it was St. Telemachus, as we understand this story of him, who was in the midst of the last ever gladiator contest in Rome. They never happen again after this man, right? When we talk about being a peacemaker, right? And we talk about the cost of being a peacemaker... Again, these things, mercy, pure in heart, peacemaking, will end you in some sort of persecution, will have you end up on your back. But again, God says, in that moment, I'm with you, I'm for you, do not be afraid. God is always with us. He speaks these blessings over us. Um, disposition, definition, or definition, disposition, direction. Good, I think that's enough for the morning. Let's discuss this for just a little bit. Um, Maybe what's changed in your definition of blessed or blessed? How could you use it to convey a dynamic reality, an exhortation, a dynamic gift, a reality, or an exhortation? In the past, how have you moralized the Beatitudes? Um, He blesses before he commands. He helps before he orders. What does that tell you about the nature of Jesus? Uh, Share a time of when you've experienced the need or the poor beatitudes of grace and faith, poor in spirit, poor in joy, poor in power, poor in righteousness. Um, The help or the full beatitudes of service and love, full of mercy, full of purity, and full of peace. Or the hurt and persecution, beatitudes of joy and hope. Persecution for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' sake. Okay, we'll just take a few minutes on those and then we'll wrap it up.